This is a prophecy concerning the kingdom of Christ inaugurated by Jesus in his death and resurrection, in his ascension, with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And one of the reasons I will argue that is because what do we find in Acts chapter 2? We find in Acts chapter 2 that great sermon that Peter preached where 3,000 people are converted in a single sermon. Lord, give us days like that again. <laughs> where Peter preaches a single message and he says what? Now, he doesn't quote Isaiah 2, but he quotes Joel. And Joel says in these last days and he describes the giving of the Holy Spirit. And what what Peter says is that this is now being fulfilled in your hearing. And I would suggest that that Peter, what Peter does with the prophecy of Joel and the outpouring of the spirit, we also are supposed to do with Isaiah, that in these last days are to be understood as being inaugurated and fulfilled in the gospel era with Christ having ascended to the right hand of the father. He gives of the spirit. And what is Christ doing? He, Jesus told us what he's doing. I will build my church. That's the mission of Christ in his ascension. He is building his kingdom. And I would suggest to you that this mountain that Isaiah is seeing, what is this mountain? Well, it's Mount Zion. And this mountain is being lifted up. Now, boys and girls, think of this as a magical mountain. Okay? This is a magical mountain. This is a a mountain that is, it is a figurative mountain, but don't think that it's not a real mountain. Sometimes people think that because it's figurative, it's not real. But this is a real mountain, but it's a magical mountain, if you will, because it is the mountain of the Lord. It is a description. You see, you have to understand, Isaiah is describing the kingdom of Christ 700 years before Christ has come. And so he has to describe the kingdom of Christ in a way that the original audience listening to Isaiah could understand. And what does he do? He describes it with what they with what they know. They know Zion. They know the temple. And so Isaiah describes here of Zion becoming Everest. Bigger than Mount Everest and the nations are coming to Everest. They're coming to Zion. Well, this, of course, is a I think a figurative way of describing the outpouring of the spirit and the building of the church internationally. The gospel, for the most part, had been contained to the Jews in Palestine and to the diaspora of the Jews in the Roman Empire. There were the occasional God fearing Gentile who would come and stand and worship the Lord in the court of the Gentiles. But for the most part, the gospel has been contained to a relatively one lone location. But here you have a prophecy of the gospel going to every tribe, every tongue, every people group. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And I would argue that that is fulfilled and is being fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. And in the outpouring of the spirit and the building up of this church, the heavenly reign of Jesus here is being described. Look at verse three. Many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Now, what are they saying when they say, come to let us go to the mountain of the Lord? They're saying, come, let's go worship Christ. Let's go worship the Lord through Jesus Christ. Let's do as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, neither on that mountain nor this mountain, but let us worship in spirit and truth. To the house 
of the God of Jacob. You see, boys and girls, when you come and worship here tonight, what are you doing? You're going to the heavenly Zion. You're going to the Zion, the magic mountain that Isaiah was prophesying here. When you come and you worship in this little chapel, you are worshiping, you are coming to the mountain. You are saying, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. That he may teach us concerning his ways. I don't think there's any argument that Matthew 28, we are still discipling the nations, teaching them to observe all that God has commanded. And that we may walk in his paths. That the law would go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then I think it is possible here that when you get to verse 4, that Isaiah begins to move or to telescope, I think, from this age to the consummated age. From the age of the gospel to the age of consummation of the kingdom of Christ. He will judge between the nations and render decision between peoples and and here they will know war no longer. Uh, I think here you're moving from the inaugurated kingdom, the extension of that kingdom to the consummation of the kingdom. You think of it much like a, a pregnancy. The, the, you have the uh, conception of the child, the growth of the child, and then the birth of the child. And then similarly, Isaiah here is seeing this uh, kingdom of, of the Lord spreading and growing. And that's what we were touching on this morning, I, I want you to look with me at uh, page 965 in your hymnal. If you take your hymnal and turn to the back of it, page 965. And let's look at this larger catechism question that I referred to this morning. Question 191. Because I think of what Isaiah is speaking of here in this prophecy is something that is uh, outlined by the Westminster Divines when we understand the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is thy kingdom come. Question 191, it's in the lower right, page 965 in the back of your hymnal. Here's the, the catechism says, it says, what do we pray for in the second petition? And the answer is in the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature, under the dominion of sin and Satan. So we're not kind of post-millennial liberals. The, remember the liberals of the early 20th century? They, they, they wanted the post-millennialism, but they didn't want the uh, Calvinism. Okay? They didn't want the idea that man was inherently evil and bound to Satan by nature. They wanted to believe that man was good and that the kingdom of God came by way of, of our of our works. But notice here, that's not exactly the way the Westminster Divines put it. They said, by nature, we're under the dominion of sin and Satan. We need something outside of ourselves to build the kingdom of Christ. We pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. The gospel propagated throughout the world the Jews called the fullness of the Gentiles brought in the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate. We're not at the consummation yet, according to the Westminster divines here. 
that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting. You see, there are people still needing to come Christ to the converting of those that are yet in their sins and the confirming, comforting and building up of those that are already converted. That Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of the second coming. This is the standard of our church. This is the teaching of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It should be. That Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and are reigning with him forever and that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends. Note here that the kingdom of Christ is to grow until the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in. They say, well, where is that in Scripture? Well, look at Romans chapter 11 with me. Romans chapter 11. Where did they get that idea? Of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles being brought into the kingdom of Christ and then the conversion of the Jews. Romans chapter 11 now, remember that here in this chapter, uh, Paul is, I think, doing a little bit of gospel apologetics. Remember, he's preaching that the gospel is the righteousness of God. It is the power of salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's his thesis. But he's dealing with an apologetic question that has arisen. And that is the question, well, if the gospel is so great, so powerful, why, Paul, did your own people, your own ethnic Jews, not come to Christ? Why is it that the church is being actually persecuted by the Jews instead of being embraced? And so Paul is trying to deal with that in an apologetic manner here. And look at what he says in verse 25. He says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Now, here's Paul's answer. He said that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Now, I think that's ethnic Israel there. A partial ha hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is, God has given, by and large, the Jews over to what? A spirit of hardness as it relates to the gospel. Now, that's not to say that there are no Jews coming to Christ. Thankfully, there are. But here, the apostle was writing to the first century church, saying that God, in his own wisdom, has broken off some of the branches in the tree, and he has engrafted you into the tree, and that there is a partial hardening that has happened to the Jews. So all Israel, oh, excuse me, um, that this partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is, until there is a time when a sufficient number, according to God's number, of Gentiles has come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So God is not going to forget the Jews. Remember, the gospel is for the Jew first. And the last shall be first again. Look at verse 28. Paul says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jews, 
Israel, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. God has not forgotten ethnic Israel. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these, that is ethnic Jews, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Remember, what did Paul say elsewhere? He said, I'm, I am provoking my fellow countrymen, my fellow Jews to jealousy. I want by converting you to Christ, I'm trying to provoke my own people to want to come to Christ when they see your joy for God, when they see your love for God and your love for each other. They're going to realize they're missing something, just as I realized when I looked at the face of Stephen, who we were busy stoning. And I saw that angelic looking face looking up to Christ in faith as he was dying. And I realized that for all my self-righteousness as a Pharisee and trusting in that, I was missing something. And Paul is saying, I'm trying to provoke my own people, my own ethnic Israel to faith in Christ by converting, by being a missionary to the Gentiles. The more of you that come to faith in Jesus Christ, the more I hope to provoke them to want to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they, the Jews, also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord who became his counselor? So Paul is caught up with this as he thinks on these things of, of the, the wisdom and the, of God. The mercy of God for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, this view of the gospel has been lost among much of evangelical Christianity. I think it came about due to a growing pessimism in the early and mid 20th century. You had the two great world wars. And I think there was a sense that uh, the world was getting worse and the gospel was not going to prevail among the nations. And so, uh, as consequence, you had the rise, I think, of dispensationalism. Now, that preceded the World Wars. I don't want you to think that that, that came with it. Uh, dispensational came about, I think it was 1834 with Darby. And so, uh, the f- first third of dispensation, the first third of the 19th century, you see the uh, beginnings of dispensationalism. And that uh, grew and, and it, it became uh, pretty mainstream in much of... Uh, American evangelicalism came the mainstream on the Christian radio and the TV uh, of what was taught. And so the idea was that the really the only future hope for the church um, was the, the rapture of the church, the rescuing of the church uh, from the, the clutches of the world. This was very different view than what our pilgrim and Puritan fathers had. So you have to understand that that the view that was maintained from uh, the early 17th century when the Pilgrim Fathers show up in 1620, 
the Puritans come in 1630, really all the way even through the middle of the 19th century, um, you had a, a view of eschatology that is described here in the Westminster Larger Catechism. But since the mid-19th century, through much of the present, you've had a shift um, from a optimistic amill or post-mill theology to that of a more dispensational premillennial theology. And, um, and that, I think, has detrimental effects um, in, in many ways. One of the effects, I think, is it, it narrows the scope of the Great Commission. And by the scope, I, I, what I mean by the scope is that, that the Great Commission then becomes a, a making of decisions um, rather than discipling the nations. Let, let's just look at Matthew 28. Let me show you what I mean. Matthew 28. Look at, look at the Great Commission with me here. Matthew 28, verse 19. I think much of evangelicalism has a truncated view of the Great Commission. It's not all that great. The idea of the Great Commission for many evangelicals is to get people to make a decision, to raise a hand, to walk an aisle, to sign a card, and boom, you fulfilled, again, the, the Great Commission. I, I would suggest to you that what is underemphasized, and so what happens is you get, you get churches with lots and lots of decisions being made, uh, but not a whole lot of real discipleship going on at any depth. And so the church doesn't have much theological depth to it. And I think that characterizes a lot of evangelicalism today. If you look at Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, go therefore and and make disciples. I'm reading from the NAS. Make disciples of all the nations. Now, those of you who have heard me for a while, you know my own view on verse 19 here. Uh, this this is not a very good translation of, of the Greek there. Um, the King James, it, does anybody still hold on to an old King James? Anybody got an old King James there? Okay, the old King James, I think, gets it right. Uh, one hand, I saw one hand. Go, therefore, and disciple the nations. It's a verb. It's not, it's not make disciples. That's a, in the Greek, it's a verb. We've turned it in, into this making of, of disciples, into a noun. It's not a noun in the Greek. It says, go, therefore, and disciple all of the nations. So the, the, the scope is not narrow. It is, it is broad. Our, what is our task? Our task is to, is to literally disciple every tribe in the world. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then here's where I say it gets truncated. Verse 20, Jesus says, teaching them to observe all. That I've commanded you. You're to teach the whole counsel of the word of God. That every area of life is supposed to come under the lordship of Christ. I'm not just making decisions out there. Getting people to make decisions for Christ. I'm supposed to be discipling the nations. And I'm supposed to be um, teaching them to observe everything in the Bible. That, that has been commanded for us to observe as, as Christians today. Well, I think what happens is. When you have a pessimistic view of the future of the church, um, and it's in, in many ways it's, it's failure to reach the nations, um, and that the only hope is, is to be rescued um, out of the world by a secret rapture. The, the, the idea is that you know that the, the church is secretly raptured out, and then you've got 
depending on what kind of dispensationalist you are, mid, pre, post-trib, you know, you, you, then the world, you know, continues to run on before downhill quickly now that all the salt and light has been taken out before the second coming. And, uh, but what, what ends up happening, though, I think many times is that we, we don't spend energy in the ways that we should, uh, building Christian schools, Christian colleges, Christian hospitals, um, that, that, that is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be discipling the nations, bringing everything under the lordship of Christ. But you see, if, if you have a very pessimistic view of the future of the church and your only hope is the rapture, well, it kind of de-incentivizes uh, you from doing those kind of cultural building activities. Uh, they, they, you know, to use the, the phrase that dispensationalists often say, they say, well, you're just polishing brass on a sinking ship. You're just on the Titanic and you're just busy. You, you know, you Presbyterians are just polishing the brass while the ship goes down. And and because that's their view of the future. That's their view of the church. Well, um, this has happened in the last 150 years um, with the rise of dispensational theology. By the way, dispensationalism was founded by an attorney. Not a theologian. So you might want to keep that in mind. All due respect to attorneys. I'm sure you're competent in your field, but that doesn't mean you're competent in our field. Okay. In the field of theology. And, uh, and that's what happened um, is that this, this idea uh, really took off in uh, late 19th century, early 20th century uh, America. There has been with the um, resurgence of of Reformed theology, though, I think there is a little bit of a comeback here, a re-examination of some of these things. Um, Let me go back here to Isaiah chapter 2. I want to move on from the uh, passage of verses 2 through 4, and I want to look quickly with you. I'm running out of time here. Verse 5. After this great prophecy of the building of the kingdom of Christ in verses two through four, we have an exhortation to do what? To come to Jesus Christ. Verse five. Notice who it's directed to. It's directed to the covenant people of God, first and foremost. Come, house of Jacob. Why? Because you have to understand, boys and girls, in Isaiah's day, the covenant people had had become unfaithful. And the first people that need to hear the gospel are the people in the church. That if if Isaiah's vision of the kingdom is to be fulfilled, the people in the church need to bring repentance and need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. And he goes on because they are filled with the influences of the east from the east. That is the Gentile nations. The religion of the of the Gentiles has come into Israel. They are the soothsayers like the Philistines. They strike bargains with the children of foreigners. There's intermarriages going on. Unequally yoked marriages are being permitted in the church. Their land has been filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. They're they're prospering, but what? They're falling in love with their prosperity. Their land has been filled with horses. There is no end to their chariots. 
Remember that Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, the king was not to multiply wives and horses and gold. And what have they done? They've done just that. The kings have multiplied to themselves wives. Solomon being the chief offender, foreign wives at that, multiplying horses and gold. They, they did everything that, that God, through Moses, warned them against. And, and then we see the idolatry in verse 8. Their land has been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands. There's apostasy in religion. And what is, what is idolatry? Idolatry, E.J. Young comments and, and Joe Moorcraft comments as well on this passage. Anything created by man and worshipped by him. Anything created by man and worshipped by him. This may include philosophies, science, education, technology, politics, pleasure, etc., And then you have the consequences of Israel's sin in verse 9 and following to verse 11, 9 up to 11. So the common man has been humbled. The man of importance has been abased. And then what does Isaiah do? He says, pray. He says, I, but he says, do not forgive them. It's a scary prayer, isn't it? Isaiah prays that God would not forgive them for their apostasy. They're unwilling to repent. Listen to what John Calvin says about that. He says, except for the faithful remnant, Israel as a society of people had become so deeply infected with the above mentioned sins, the idolatry, that there was no hope for a cure. The meaning, therefore, amounts to this, that the restoration of a new church must not be expected until God has executed his judgments by destroying the temple. They had reached the point of no return. I pray that's not the case for America. I know we're not a covenant nation. I know we've not entered into a covenant formally with the Lord Jesus Christ. But I pray that we've not reached the point of no return where all that we can expect is judgment from God. Verse 12 down to 22, we see the judgment of God. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. And and you see all the judgments coming against the oaks of Bashan, the lofty mountains, the hills. Why is God judging all these things? He's judging them in part because these were places where the false religion was taking place under the oaks of Bashan, the ashram, um, these places of false worship. And notice here that verse 17, the the pride of man will be humbled, the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And this will sound familiar to those of you who read the book of Revelation. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of of the rocks and in the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord. You remember that's a picture of the second coming. Remember that? It's a picture that that the, the, the wicked will turn to the mountains and they'll say, fall on us, to the hills, cover us. I remember Sinclair Ferguson commenting on that. He said that the wicked in the final day when Christ is revealed in his consummated glory, he said, you know, you remember the the Twin Towers collapsing in New York and how terrible that was. And, And what the wicked will do, they will actually not run away from the collapsing of the mountains. They'll run towards them. Because they would rather they would rather run into the collapsing towers 
than to have to face the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory and in his judgment. Let me just look at the end here with you and bring it to a close. Verse 22, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. Why should he be esteemed? They are told to turn to the Lord. There is hope for us. We don't have to run to collapsing mountains and hills in order to hide from the Lord. That will be impossible. But there is a refuge for us. And that refuge, of course, is Jesus himself. Jesus does not delight in the death of the wicked. He has died on the cross for your sins and my sins so that we could find refuge in him. We could hide in him. We could have the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness that we need and that God demands in order to stand before his holy presence. Amen.